had a big head, rounded ears, six feet in the body maybe, with a very, very long tail, very muscular build. As it was walking, it was, it was still looking at me, and that's when I really panicked. It looked at me and thought, oh, oh, there's a human there, I'm not scared. You say, well, I've seen this big cat, and some people just flatly refuse. They think that Britain's such a sweet little island, we shouldn't have predators that size. I heard this growl behind me. Nothing like a dog growl. And just like anything else in life, you're sat on your own there. I don't care who you are, how brave you are. Something like that will put the shivers up your spine. As she was walking before the cub came out, she flicked this tail. She literally flicked it in the air. And I simply could not believe what I was seeing. It was the most extraordinary feeling. It threw its head back, he said, and it made this sort of round. But when you actually realise that there are big cats living in Britain, it changes everything. Welcome to Big Cat Conversations. We speak directly to people who've encountered one of Britain's big cats. We also discuss the bigger picture. Why are unofficial big cats being seen, and could these cats even be naturalising without us knowing? If you've had a big cat encounter in Britain and would like to discuss it, email me at rick at bigcatconversations.com. You can find other episodes on the website bigcatconversations.com. I'm Rick Minter, and thanks for joining me. Hi everyone and welcome to episode 5 of Big Cat Conversations. Today's episode is a theme edition on sheep farming, looking at sheep farmer perspectives when they have a visiting big cat around. And I want to say at the outset that there are different experiences from sheep farmers. Two other sheep farmers that I've met this year have had contrasting incidents on their farm. One in January in the Cotswolds had a roe deer killed on his land. His vet assumed it was a big cat kill, and I did when I was called to visit. That sheep farmer has never had any of his sheep touched by a big cat, as far as he knows, and this was a new experience for him. Another sheep farmer that I was called to visit in South Wales in April, May this year, had had, through that time, four different sheep impacts, four eaten out sheep over six weeks on the farm. I was invited to put up trail cameras on the farm and it stopped, of course, as soon as I put the cameras there. He actually said he would be quite happy to sacrifice two more sheep to get the cat on the camera for the evidence. So maybe he wouldn't have said that if it was um, a ram that would take the impact or pedigree sheep. So there are different experiences, different perspectives. Today, our two different guests have had direct experience of dealing with a big cat. Okay, well, I want to introduce our first guest, Gordon. And Gordon was based in South Wales at a farm where he ran some sheep. And he's going to talk about some incidents which occurred between 2007 and 2012 at this farm. 
and Gordon's now moved away, but he's very happy to talk generally about all the events and what occurred and how he felt about it. So, Gordon, thanks very much for joining us. If you could start by telling us how you first began to realise there might be a big cat around on the farm. Certainly. We had recently moved to South Wales, some seven months before, eight months before, and uh, May time, 2007, we had a second youngest was born. Very, very hot it was, if I remember well. And we had all the windows open in the bedroom. We had new to farming, taken on some sheep. And the next morning, I walked out and at the end of the garden, which is no more than 80 metres straight from our bedroom window, I found a yow. And she would have been about 80 kilos and she had her throat crushed and her whole rear ham was gone. The thing about that was the baby at the time, he was quite uncomfortable in the heat and we had all the windows open and both of us were most awake all of the all of the night, you know, with the disturbances and we didn't hear a thing. And no dogs setting off? No, we had two dogs in the yard, didn't kick off at all. One was a sheep dog, one was a gun dog. Neither of them gave us any indication there was anything going on. And they were approximately 100 metres from where the incident took place. Following that, you heard sort of screams in the valley that you had no experience of, and you actually thought that was a person, didn't you? I did, yeah. I came home one evening late from work. It had been a long day. I was in construction as well, and I remember getting home and... A dear wife said she could tell us a little bit of stress. This is going on a few months now. This was November, December, and uh, I, it was very cold, about minus two. And as I got home, she came to the door and very considerately she gave me a beer and she said, look, things aren't quite right inside just now. Why don't you just have a beer in the barn and chill out? And I said, sure. I was sat in the barn on the end of the quad and I heard this screaming. And it went on and it went on and there was a yowl sounded could have been human but it went on a long time it sounded like someone being struck a woman specifically i actually got to the point that went on so long i went inside and phoned my neighbor and asked him to stick his head out the window he was about two three hundred meters yeah something like that and uh, I, I remember the call and it wasn't a person it was identified later on as a female mountain lion screaming for a mate yeah, but you had no idea at the time. You, you no, assumed not it at was... all. Not at all, but it was no fox. I have a, previously, I've done a lot of shooting. I don't do any more, haven't for several years, but I was 20 years, 25 years shooting um, rifles and shotguns, quite burst, and the screeches and squalls that come from the countryside at various times of the day and night, evening, morning. But this was something I'd never heard before. Mm. And it sounded like a human in distress or a female in distress. I would have said it sounded pretty much like a woman being hit, but it repeated itself. And people can hear that on the internet, actually. Just Google Puma screams and they'll hear what you're talking about. Gordon, you it took you a while before you first sort of saw any signs visibly of the actual creature. Did you get more hits before you sort of saw its eyes? Can you tell us that the next sets of incidents? Yeah, after that, it was August, it was very hot, and we'd put two young tops in with the horses, which was in the field next to the house, just above it, and 
I went up one day as I did, and we had we had sheep in two other fields, and I went up in the quad, and I noticed with the horses that one of the tops was missing, and I had the dogs with me. I got my stopped the quad, climbed over the top gate, so it's then probably 300 metres in a diagonal to where I was heading because that's where I'd seen them last. So I walked across the field and the two horses stayed in their corner where I got off the quad. They weren't following me down. They weren't looking for food and stuff. And the two dogs came with me. One was a German wirehead pointer, a shooting dog, and the other was a cross collie using the sheep. And I got down and I found the other top and he was underneath Hazel Hawthorne Hedge and I could just see him. And I went in to pull him out, and then there was a kerfuffle, an altercation, and I looked to my left, and the two dogs take off. Now, it was August, and we hadn't had our first cut done yet, so the grass was quite long. But I reached in and pulled this tub out, and I phoned the vet, and I described the injuries, and there were four puncture wounds, maybe three inches apart the upper ones, and two inches apart the lower ones. I could stick a pencil in each of them and it had been dragged in there by the throat. So I got him out, and I put him in the barn as I phoned the vet. He was very distressed, and that was... You're beginning to sort of put one and one together, you know, mm. because you don't have any cause for this, why he should be stood under this hedge with these symmetrical puncture wounds in his neck, around his throat, you know, mm. and the scratch marks in the back of the head as well. After that, we lost... Over a period of years, 13 head of stock, two particularly, 45 kilos of meat taken in five hours. I've got the photographs peeled inside out. Now I put those yows down in the front field next to my neighbours, and it's quite heavily wooded, and he can't see onto it, but it's right near fresh water. When I went, that was about 11 o'clock at night, and there was two dogs free in the yard, which was 100 metres away. And when I went down at half five in the morning, I, I found out a stripped out carcass. I mean, she was like a wind chime with the skin just pulled up round her neck. Her head was intact. Nothing broken on her apart from one shoulder was dislocated. All sinews and everything in place. But every ounce of meat had been licked off and removed. Mm. Her rib cage open, like I said, she was like a wind chime. Mm. I can't remember. Did you have a good daylight visual of it at all? Not daylight, but in my lamper's lamp, I had up a tree, and it was body size, size of a Labrador, flat, squat, wide head, tail two to three feet long, as thick as my arm, yellow, green, fireworky bright eyes, about four or five inches apart. And I, I, I had the lamp on it, and my daughter said, what's that, Daddy, is it a sheep? Because we're looking at it almost level, but the drop of the land after the fence meant it was about 15, 16, 17 feet above. What do you think it was doing, just watching you, waiting for you to leave the scene so it could get on with its evening's business? Well, it followed us up. That's when I was showing the kids how to work a lamp, and the younger children were all screaming and laughing. Because I I would flick through a rabbit. You flick through a rabbit and you cut the lamp off, and then you bring the lamp back. And the rabbit sat up, and that's when you shoot it. Mm. And they're showing the kids how to do this. And we went on like this for 200 yards from the house up to the quarry. And then, who's now the middle child, said to me, Dad, can I get a go to the lamp? I said, of course you can. And I turned around to where we'd been lamping, and I pulled the lamp up, and I saw these eyes. And the child said to me, what's that, Daddy? 
And I took the hand and I said, come on, we'll have a look. Because I'm looking at it. These fireworks sap a tree. And I got to within 12 feet of it with a lamper's lamp, which doesn't give you daylight, but it looked to be the colour of a grey squirrel. Size of a Labrador, big front paws, big, thick, long, two and a half, three foot tail, stared at me. And that's when my child said to me, and I'm holding the hand, and I'm only 10, 12 feet from it. And they said, what's that, Daddy? Is it a sheep? And I was just saying, yes, yes, sweetheart, it's a sheep. It's a sheep. And it dropped silently 15 feet in the ramble. At the same time, 200 metres away to my left, the horses are going crazy in the dark, and my wife shouted me, what's upsetting the horses? <laughs> you told me at the time that... Um you did have a visit from a public body, and we won't name them, uh, but, but a significant one to do with agriculture. Uh, and that person informally acknowledged that you had a big cat around in their view. Is that right? We got a visit shortly after that, and they asked about... Because we were... I wouldn't say we were off the radar, but we were smallholders with rare breed flock. And they came up for a visit. And I kept photographic evidence of all my fallen stock because I didn't have any fallen stock. She came up and they had a look at the flock and she was very complimentary on the standard and and the confirmation, etc., and the healthiness of the flock of sheep we had. And she asked about fallen stock. And I showed her pictures of the fallen stock because the fallen stock we had, which was 13 stretched-out carcasses, because you meant to take them to her a hunt yard or whatever, and I said, what, what's to take to a hunt yard? I was told I was uh, to carry on taking care of it in the manner I had been, mm. which was, yeah, you've got nothing but bones left, really, in the skin. And there was an acknowledgement that there was a big predator uh, responsible, but but that was, off the, oh, that was off the record, is that? It was off the record, completely yeah. off the record. But um, I, I could have been fined or I had my licence to keep stock removed in the back, but I, I wasn't, you know, there was stock missing, but I was showing photographs of the stock, why mm. it was missing, yeah. is my interpretation. And not being able, I didn't have to defend what I had left. There was no point in taking it to the hunt yard because yeah. there was nothing left. So technically you were doing something that was illegal or, or, or not according to regulations, but they were sympathetic informally because of the circumstances. Yeah. How did it feel, Gordon, sort of dealing with something that was taking stock occasionally and sometimes routinely, but that you couldn't see and you couldn't deal with? How, how does that bug you as a farmer? Initially, it was quite scary because when we first moved in, one of the children was only two years old. And there was an incident about the time that the ham was taken off the big ewe. We found another one with his head taken. And it was stripped out and stuffed in the hedge where we found the one with the four puncture wounds. My memory's coming back as we discuss. Mm. And took the head, I don't know. But the grass at the back of where the children played was two to three feet long. And we weren't anywhere near the main road. We were three miles from the nearest B road and a bit more to our main road. And it was quite disconcerting. It was worrying. But eventually you learned to live with it. And you just made sure the children knew that they made a noise wherever they went. You kept your eyes open and you kept your grass short, really. You learned to live with it, is what I'm saying. Yeah. 
And the family adapted, you'd say? Would... Yeah, yeah. They were respectful, but with confidence. You know, they knew the times and the places and what to avoid. And if they're going somewhere dark, even in daylight, you know, to make a lot of noise. And Did, did your dogs get spooked and affected? Because I visited several times, but I can't remember that, how they reacted. We had the horses and the dogs. We always knew it was in the area because the three horses got in the middle of the field with their bums to each other and snorted. And you you could go up to them, but they wouldn't want to be handled. Mm. They just simply wouldn't. You could always tell when the cat was in the area because the horses would play up. And these were horses that were well-schooled and would take anybody, anything, any age on their backs. But when it was about, you could tell the tails were up, the ears were forward, the nostrils were flared. We lost a dog, and I, I was convinced, though I have no proof, it was a spaniel, and I was away from home at the time, and I had quartered out, and we did find bones near the stream a year later that were canine, but I could never prove it. None of my neighbours ever picked up on the dog, and a, a very well-schooled spaniel, and that's what they do is they quarter out, and then they come home. I mean, they don't wander, they're not retrievers, they're not flushes like pointers or stuff like that. I didn't ever think the dogs knew what the smell meant. Okay. Because they weren't used to it. Yeah. The horses suddenly did. Yeah, mind you, Gordon, and we'll get on to this in the podcast series eventually, but what seems to be the case is that pumas, mountain lions, cougars, the one that you heard calling, don't really have much of a smell. Leopards do have more of a smell, but um, I think sometimes dogs can pick up the movement and sense a big predator around for other reasons. But, yeah, I don't remember you ever saying that your dogs were edgy sometimes in the way that no. other farmers and dog walkers who feel that their dogs sense big cats were... Now, you are, as you've been saying, skilled with firearms, but what did you think about if you wanted to take it out? It would have been a lot of practical difficulty, you feel. Is that right? I think that definitely. I mean, it isn't just the, the cries I heard. The stock that was taken was worrying, but towards about halfway through being there, I sort of felt not an indifference, uh, quite the opposite. I sort of felt that, we were living together. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I didn't have any foxes, and I kept 30 geese for Christmas every year. And <laughs> never a goose was taken. You know, I didn't have any chickens taken. There was nothing like that happening. It was stock, and it was sheep. Nothing else. I think I saw a fox for eight years. We were Nine years we were there twice. Yeah, and you think that was the cat's influence? I think there was something that was discouraging them from hanging about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to put it simply. If we get back to the, the concept of shooting a cat, even if you wanted to, I mean, I mean, if you could explain this, I remember at the time you saying, A, you didn't want to shoot it because no. you'd learned to live with it, but B, if you felt that you did want to, the chances of doing so would be negligible. So it wouldn't be worth trying anyway. Is that right? It was one of the reasons I kept it quiet. I only spoke to a couple of people. Because, like anywhere else, well-meaning or not, you get some people that are a bit gung-ho. Yeah. And in the end, uh, I sort of felt that it wasn't doing me any harm, and you were living together almost. Mm. And it was like a, a mutual respect. Yeah. I couldn't see any point in going all out to pursue it. And it was out of my hands anyway, you know. I mean, this thing was so smart. You know, I was I was just maybe giving way to my own ego to try and take it on, to take it out. You know, it was mm. quite cheeky at times. Yeah, yeah. 
the thing was, you were getting signs like the scratch marks on the tree that were six feet up. You were getting signs that there was a big thing there, you know. I mean, that was six feet up in the middle of woodland that nobody else went to. I hadn't been in for two months. Yes. Gordon, we'll put that photo in the show description notes on the website so people can see that. I, I didn't, no, I, I, I didn't feel I could gain anything myself for whatever yeah. reason in pursuing this and yeah. and tracking it down sort of thing, you know. And yeah. It's been there a long time, I felt, and I was just new to this. When you discuss the um, sheep impacts, uh, the carcass impacts, with other farmers and neighbours, what kind of response did you get? Farmer communities are quite closed. And I had one or two came forward who had had similar um, experiences, but nothing on my scale. And we just acknowledged that. And we acknowledged that we just keep it where it is, you know, as simple as that. Yeah, yeah. They'd had it before and they didn't want to discuss it with private people. And But I did find out from members of the public that came to the area and you got all sorts of stories. So there was some local history uh, that would sort of reinforce big cat sightings in the location? Quite, quite a lot, quite a lot. You reckon you were being picked on more than other farmers because your stock were untreated, they, they were never dipped or, or sprayed deliberately no. because you wanted to sell them for that sort of premium value? Yeah, my wife and I strongly believe that I know it's necessary in big flocks. I'm, I'm, I'm not making out I know better. But uh, we had a small flock. It did build up to about 70 or 80, but they were rare breeds. And I kept an eye on them. We, we, we didn't have fly strike. We didn't have foot rot. We didn't lose any to that. We didn't dip them, didn't spray them. We, we looked after them, you know, we nurtured them, and we tagged them and stuff like that. And we kept an eye on them, and we pulled them in. But no, we, d- we didn't need to do anything. We didn't want to do anything like that with the view to the chemicals being drenched and yeah. all that sort of stuff. And you feel that that was influencing the cat's preference for your stock? Well, I had uh, neighbours that had, you know, they had tag sheep on the land and stuff, you know. They never, or they never let me know, but to my knowledge, they didn't have as, they didn't have any hits. You were one of the first sheep farmers that I visited and spent time with. Since visiting your land, Gordon, I've visited about 12 others, and I would say 10 of those are the same in that they had undipped, untreated sheep. And again, they, were, they felt they were getting more hits than any neighbours they knew of. So I think there is something in this. I'm very grateful to you for sort of pointing it out because I probably wouldn't have twigged for a while. Well, no, you know, you, you spray something, it's not as appealing to something like a cat. I dealt with an estate in Scotland where they had ongoing issues for three years and they said um, they, uh, well, I, I told them this about untreated sheep and so they treated half the flock. It was a big, big numbers we're talking about. Then they phoned me back a month later and said we've had four hits in a month, week intervals as usual, give or take a few days, and all of those hits have been on the untreated sheep. Yeah. So that was a nice little bit, bit of experimentation which should have seemed to help um, cement the case no surprise there really when you think about it and you consider it do you think you could have done anything gordon which would have minimized the impacts well i well i did i i did i just the people who had been there before were a retired couple and they'd been there 13 years and they just had tax sheep on which had basically left themselves 
when we moved there with a young family, I was a lot more active. And for the, for that, for the first two years, that's where the biggest challenge came from, was that's when I began to really recognize what mm. was going on. It was systematic in what it was doing. And I became more active then, and things fell away a little bit. We, I mean, we had 11 hits in two years, and then it came down to, I think all in all, we had 19 hits. We had 13 in the first two years, and then we had 19 all in all over the nine years. Gordon, did you, through this experience, did you try and assert yourself more on the land to sort of try and minimise the disturbances? I, well, I, I took on the land in as much as that I managed it differently. I mean, we brought pigs in, and the pigs were behind an electric fence. They were free range, and that was a thing that we had a, a yow carcass, the one I was talking about, 45, 50 kilos of meat taken in four or five hours. It was only 50 metres from where we had the pigs behind an electric fence. So you change the dynamic of mm-hmm. what's going on. But it didn't change. I mean, it knew what I was doing. <laughs> it sounds mad, but it did. When the horses got out, uh, we had the horses come out. We were woken up one morning, and Ricky, you've been to the farm, and you come through that shady bit at the bottom as you cross the stream. And we were woken up at the horses one morning, and one sheep had disappeared. Now, I don't know where it went, but that was another one in the field with the horses. And the horses had bent a five-bar gate to get out. But, of course, you had to go down the gully, which is darkness. They had animals, and they know where they belong. There was a little bit of competition with the dynamic. Yeah. I was just moving, moving things around, and maybe it was getting a bit uncomfortable and used to its territory. And I, I did become more assertive with shooting, but I was shooting yes. anyway. And I think the intrusion of the noise and the dogs by their scent and smell and the freshness around the area, especially around the perimeter and localised areas I had permission to go into, maybe discouraged it in the latter years. Later on in the series, we'll talk to a guy who had a panther released on his land in Spain, and that that behaved very differently from what we're used to in Britain because it was a fresh released one. And I remember him saying every time he went away, he'd he'd come back to Britain for three months and then he'd go back in the spring to Spain and he'd say, I'm sure I know that it's been around, it, it's asserted itself while I've been away, and now I've got to wrestle back control. It's very interesting. And even when I did, you know, there'd be the hit like I had when we all played the All Blacks, you know, I went up, I've, I've got a picture of that, the top was dragged, and he wasn't a young top, he was two, three years old. So he was basically not a top, mm. he was a young ram. But uh, I went up and fed the horses, and they came up to the gate, I think that was about 8, 9 mm. o'clock at night. You could see the marks in the frost, the drag lines in the frost, couldn't you? Yeah, you could see where it was dragged and there wasn't an ounce of blood. Everything plucked out, peeled inside out, a bit like, yes. you know, a herring. Yeah, you know, it yeah. was like, Clinical. like herring bones. Yeah. It skimmed, skimmed to the back and everything taken off. And the horses, they were 300 metres away and they weren't coming anywhere down there. You know, they'd seen what had gone on. And they were having nothing to do with it, and they were all grouped together. And I never, I didn't get them down that to that gate again for three or four weeks. I just wanted to get your sort of more general views about, you know, having had that experience, including with a young family and with kids growing up. How do you feel personally, in general, about big cats being around in Britain? 
I shot the game and everything we saw went on the table. You know, I wasn't shooting for shooting's sake. Um, I could do that with targets. With a view to a cat I, and a young family, I almost felt a bit privileged that we all got along together, if that makes sense. The children knew. We were all aware. We Once we got used to it, we never felt threatened. It was a bit cheeky at times, but I think they should be left alone. I think they should be. Well, the thing is, if you acknowledge them, though, like I said, you've got a lot of aspiring great white hunters out there that might turn up with open licenses and do stuff and make a mess and create a hysteria where there's no need for it. But we lived with it for eight, nine years, and we all managed to get along okay, Rick. You know, it's it was scary at times, I have to admit. You know, when I was adjusting to it, and my wife was, to take on this different sense of risk we hadn't been brought up with, you feel any sort of aspiring great white hunters would have a challenge anyway, even if they wanted to, though? They wouldn't have a chance. I've often listened to the people from the hunt yards and stuff, and I know I know guys from there, and they used to say, well, you know, if there was any cats, we would have flushed them out. Not at all. You know, from three miles away, you open the door of a kennel two hours earlier than you normally do. It's all from the opposite direction. You'd be very lucky. Very lucky to pick up. These aren't domestic animals. These aren't dogs. They're cats. And they're not feral cats. And I had feral cats on the farm. Yes. And they're a handful. Never mind something that is not a feral cat. It's a wild cat that's adapted to the environment into which it's been introduced, which is quite gentle. You know, it doesn't want for anything. I mean, there's rabbits and pheasants, and it can pick up the odd this and that. No, it's not challenged. It's not hungry. And incidentally, I... Although I agree with your point about cats, uh, because of their hearing and their movement, they would pick up any disturbance and move well before there was a chance of them being flushed out in normal circumstances. I have to say, I have had hunts admit to me that they have flushed them out, incidentally, in then normal activities, yeah. They're, they're both of the cat, and that would probably might be down to an overpopulation of cats in the area where it's actually sitting stone as opposed to yeah. heading home. Because, you know, I, I don't know. We, we don't know. It was a very enlightening experience. Mm. I wouldn't swap it for anything. I know I wouldn't want to see them shot. I think it's something that given time people will learn to get along with if they're ever acknowledged. But I saw it, I heard it, and I don't share it with many people. We're going to hear another farmer 600 miles north of uh, where you were, so, uh, but similar experiences and still going on now, so that's going to be our next guest. Well, Gordon, we really appreciate um, hearing all of your sort of mixed emotions through that whole experience, and I know you've moved away now and it's not part of your life, but to revisit that for us and take us through it all, I think it's been extremely valuable, so we're really grateful to you. Thanks, Gordon. It's a pleasure. It's time for our word of the week. This week it is a term, obligate carnivore, and that means an animal which is a strict meat eater. It cannot eat vegetable matter. It doesn't have the physiology to digest vegetable matter. Our big cats, and indeed any cats, are obligate carnivores. The obligate part means by necessity. So by necessity, a strict eater of mammals, birds and fish and nothing more. A dog, a canid, can eat rice, fruit, etc. Droppings of foxes in the autumn have plenty of berries in them, for example. And the actual term for a dog or canid is a scavenging carnivore. 
They're primarily a meat eater, but they can digest plant material. Other obligate carnivores include crocodiles, mink and dolphins. And one of the ways that we see big cats are an obligate carnivore is when we analyse the fresh remains of prey. So, for, for example, on a deer kill, we'll often see the stomach remains pulled out. A cat cannot eat the grassy content of a herbivore. The strict meat-eating diet of big cats is also a reason why they may well have been released as early as war times when people did not have a good supply of meat, of course, with meat rationing. So if you had a collection of big cats during wartime, you may well have felt the best thing to do was to release a big cat. So there's our term of the week, obligate carnivore. Okay, well I want to introduce our second guest now, and this is another farmer, but somebody who is farming at the moment with her son in North Scotland, and she uh, runs about 150 sheep. Thank you, Jean, for joining us, and Jean, can you explain uh, the background to all of this? Uh, When did you first hear about Big Cat reports in the vicinity of your area? When I came to this area from the south of England in 1978, my late husband and a friend had been out lamping for foxes the previous winter and had seen a large black animal with a long tail and a feline appearance which had gone over a ridge. They pursued it and by the time they got to the top of the ridge it had completely gone. Uh, they were convinced it was a cat rather than a dog in the way it moved. Okay, and and since then you've heard neighbours and visitors, um, other people talk about big cat reports off and on, haven't you? Well, following on to this sighting by my husband, there were other people in the area who reported sheep killed in an unusual way and uh, sightings of a large black animal, when I say large, slightly bigger than a collie or smaller than a Labrador. Um, And at that time, police and gamekeepers went out to look for the animal but but had no success in finding it. And we're talking about quite extensive wild sort of fell land, aren't we, which um, does make it tricky. I mean, I know you can see sort of good distances, but it's still difficult to pick up a stealthy animal in in that situation, isn't it? Indeed, yes. We farm on, on several thousand acres of hill ground, um, which is it's got heather, gorse, small willow trees, so there's good cover for an animal. And when did you last hear about a good sort of visual sighting of uh, a big cat in the locality, Jean? Over the years since then, there have been various sightings, but uh, of the last three years, there's been an increase in activity. Um, my friend who lives uh, six miles from me was walking her dog early one morning um, on a hillside through wind bushes, gorse bushes, and she saw an animal cross in front of her and the dogs. Um, again, she described it as large, black, cat-like with a long tail. Mm. And there's been several other sightings over the past three years, usually someone seeing them at night crossing a road. You had a, you told me you had a delivery driver uh, see one early one morning, is that right? 
Yes, it, it was actually, I think, a plumber who was going out to his work and he saw an animal cross the road in front of him um, just at my road end. Um, again, he was adamant that it was a cat rather than a dog that crossed the road. This was early morning in the winter mm. when it was dark, so it, he got it in the headlights of his van. Mm. And is it exclusively a black cat that people are reporting, or are you getting any other colour cat reported? Mostly black or dark. One lady saw an animal which she described as a light brown, which crossed the road in the daytime and went up some rocks and disappeared over the rocks. Okay, so that would maybe suggest, if if that was a credible report, a sort of the, the cougar, puma, mountain lion type, which um, mm-hmm. often are seen in the same locations as, as the black ones. That's interesting. But predominantly black cats uh, reported over, well, decades, really. We're talking about it, aren't we? Yes, yeah. indeed. Jean, I know that seeing these cats is really difficult, uh, but what about calls? Does anybody hear, sometimes hear suspicious calls at all? Yes, that has been talked about. Um, One lady said she heard a cry which she could only describe as a woman being attacked. Now, she's lived in this area all her life and is aware of the noise of a fox when it calls at mating time and uh, a a stoat when it gets a rabbit. This was, she said, quite blood-curdling and something she'd not heard before. Another man said he'd heard a similar Thing, a, um, a screaming sort of noise, um, which he couldn't relate to anything he'd ever heard before. That's interesting. Certainly the woman being strangled type noise is something we've just discussed with our first guest in, in this episode, and it would uh, equate with the mountain lion, also called mm-hmm. cougar and puma. That's a felis cat, not a panthera cat, So, and it's got that sort of higher-pitched wail and screech, and that call is potentially a female on heat. So that's interesting that we're getting that consistency uh, and that people are picking up as something different from the native animal sounds that, they, that they're used to. Yes, a, a fox's call is very distinctive and we hear that frequently. Yeah, yeah. But interesting that it's, you know, uh, not the black one that, you know, is being seen more. Uh, that the black, the black one, if it is a black leopard, which is the normal candidate, has got more of a sort of um, a grunty sawing noise and a coughing mm-hmm. noise in its normal um, vocalizations. But so people, you're not hearing coughs and, and sawing type uh, calls. I haven't heard of anyone report that, no. No, okay. Now, can you t- talk us through the sheep impacts, Jean? When did you first sort of um, find something which you felt was um, impacted by a large predator, but n- maybe not a dog or a fox? In, on our own land, it would be two years ago in the winter, we found a carcass where the um, skin had been as if peeled off and cleaned, uh, as if one would to, to make a rug. The bones were all picked completely clean, ribs broken off, and everything sort of in the area, the the intestine to one side. But not as you would find where a fox comes to to take a sheep that's died, that they come back and forth and take bits, leave bits lying about the area. This was very clean, and a large amount of um, meat eaten within 
24, 48 hours of, of that sheet mm. being found there. And since then, you've had how many sort of similar ones like that? We have been fortunate in that we've only had perhaps half a dozen on, a, off, on our own ground that we have actually found a carcass in a similar state. But a neighbour who lives in the, the next valley has had numerous losses of a similar nature. Do, is there any difference in uh, how the sheep are kept uh, uh, and um, things like how they are treated in terms of sprayed or dipped? Is, is there any different smell or anything that should distinguish them in terms of a predator's behaviour and, and, and predator's sort of selection? This is one thing, having thought about it, that is different now from some years ago. Dipping used to be compulsory and the dips we used were very strong and smelly. And it was done regularly under supervision of, of the police because it, it was a, an obligation to dip your sheep. Now, since um, we haven't had sheep scab in the area, we tend to use a spot-on um, treatment for uh, animal infestations, lice and, and ticks and so on. And it doesn't have the same smell as the old dips used to. And do you feel that is influential on on the predator's selection of sheep? This has been my thought, yes. What's different now from some years back um, when we weren't aware that there were more sheep kept, but we weren't aware of, of so many losses as there have been in the last two or three years within this particular area. Uh, and, Jean, you and your neighbour have also reckoned that you've been having rogue fox uh, scavenging as well uh, and but the evidence on the carcasses has been sort of different is that right um yes there have always been foxes in this area which is why my husband was out lamping we've seen what foxes do to a carcass usually it's, it's a sheep that's died of some other reason possibly pneumonia or some disease result of tick or liver fluke which is prevalent in this area Although the sheep are dosed for it, there's always some that uh, succumb to the diseases. But the fox would come in um, over several nights and drag bits away and make a big mess. There'd be wool everywhere over a wide area. But these kills have been particularly clean, and that's yes. the difference. Yeah, the cats are very clinical and neat and tidy, aren't they? I have to say, uh, I mean, w- when you showed me photos of of the carcasses, I mean, I I felt some were fox like because they were much more messy. Uh, and then we we put some camera. I helped. I sent some cameras, and we we um, fairly early on in after that, we got a remarkable rapid fire set of photos of a very large fox disabling a sheep at the front legs, but uh, and which of course is terrible for the sheep but a fascinating picture to see what an artful fox like that is capable of but of course the can then the consumption pattern will be very different from what you've explained as the more cat-like ones yeah that series of pictures um, quite astounded me i didn't think that a fox would go in and attack a full-grown yell what he did was he grabbed her by the upper foreleg but that yell didn't actually die um when I went down in the morning, what drew my attention was another sheep had gone on its back in the burn and had actually drowned. But the um, second sheep was limping, and that's when I discovered the bite marks on the upper foreleg. And then checking the camera, 
discovered what the fox had done. He'd chased him down a hill, gone round in front of the owl and grabbed her leg. But he didn't bring yeah, her Yeah, so down. even after doing that, even disabling her as much as he could, he could still not predate which is, again, the very helpful camera uh, work. I think sometimes when the camera yields something which isn't big cat evidence, but other activity, it's still very useful because it rules things in and rules things out. Okay, very interesting indeed. And and what about rogue dogs? Three years ago, we had a dog attack on sheep in a field that is within the forestry um area where there's a, a walk where people take their dogs. We came down the forest track to find the sheep bunched, terrified in the corner, and a, I think there were eight sheep had been attacked, bits pulled out, lumps of wool, an ear pulled off one sheep. It was a, a totally different um, attack to these sheep that have been killed and, and clean eaten. It was, it was a sort of frenzied attack, a bite here, a bite there, and the sheep were terrified. Yes. And, and when they, when you have the sort of what, what we feel are the cat uh, impacts, the rest of... Well, of course, you don't always know because they're so remote from you, the flock, but um, are you sensing that the flock, most of the flock, don't aren't aware uh, because one of, the, one of them's been taken out where the rest really aren't really aware of what's happened? The, the most recent kill in this area, our neighbour, had a sheep taken down and the throat eaten out of it in amongst the other sheep within 200 yards of her house. Someone in the house heard a noise at 5am and went out and discovered this sheep lying with the throat eaten. It was very fresh. They felt they had possibly disturbed the animal. Mm. But the other sheep were still grazing in the vicinity. Yes. Uh, in a way, they wouldn't be if, if a dog had spooked them. No. I mean, certainly having seen a dog attack within the last three years, it was a very different thing. Yes, yes. Yes, I've seen the photo of the, the on, on the carcass with the throat gone, and my assessment of that would be that it's a, a classic sort of uh, big cat, big predator clamp at the windpipe they 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 dispatch one of their main um, favored dispatch methods is the canines sink uh, into the trachea the windpipe and asphyxiate and then um, on that one i think it carried on consuming in that area for a bit and it probably would have then sheared through uh, the back area to get through to the rich organs but as you're suggesting it was disturbed before it got any further on that one yes do, do you have any sense of why a cat is doing this, what we would call prey switching. Presumably there are deer and rabbits in the area that would be uh, part of its um, menu uh, at other times. We don't have a lot of rabbits in the area at the moment. The, the population declined quite rapidly um, about four or five years ago. Um, but there are plenty of deer, and we've seen deer with fawns um, on the hill, quite numerous, since neighbouring land has been bought up and, and the deer removed from there. Um, some were culled and others, we feel, were probably driven onto our land. So there are more deer about than have been. So why the cat would switch to taking sheep um, is beyond me, really, unless it's an easy option. Yes, and especially when there are fawns around as well, because they really would target fawns. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, one 
judgment I have, which is only sort of one possibility, is that when this happens, it's most likely a young, inexperienced one that has um, separated from its mother earlier than is uh, normal, uh, and it hasn't really been fully taught how to predate uh, natural game, you know, deer, uh, and so it's not as experienced as it could be, and sheep are an easy, easier target, uh, because of course when they start getting going on their own, they do sort of bungle uh, some of the predation events. It takes them time to get the knack, and especially when there aren't clean kills. I mean, I don't know. Have you all your all the kills on the on the um, the cat like kills been clean and fully dispatched, fully implemented, to your knowledge? No, that that's one thing that is we thought was strange. My son had a young sheep attacked. Um, it, it died, but it was split behind the ear, and there was a chunk taken out of the leg and um, bite marks in the other leg. Mm. So yes, it, it, this wasn't the clean eating of, a, of an animal that it had caught. Mm. But he didn't think it was a dog or a fox impact. We didn't think it was fox-like at all. And if it was a dog, it was it, it had come and gone very quickly. Dogs are usually much easier to see. Yes. What what about the type of um, sheep? Are these these are non-pedigree, and you're not losing rams? Is that the case? No, these are North Country Cheviots. They're not a very large sheep. The rams are usually, they, they don't go out to the hill. They're kept in on the fields in by. Yeah. I, I did think you did send me a picture of a ram uh, impact. Is that right or not? Ah, uh, that's my neighbour. Hmm. My sort of um, chats and conversations with, with different farmers around the country, they tend to be much more bothered. This is quite understandable if uh, a ram uh, has gone because they're obviously more difficult and tricky to replace uh, and they have a key role. Uh, and also if it's pedigree sheep. Um, yeah. Well, what do you think about the losses? Well, we're smallholders. 150 sheep is not enough to sustain you as a living. Crofting is, is done as a sideline, really. Mm. Um, but obviously any profits we make are welcome. So losing more than one would expect from natural causes is is a big loss because it makes an impact on your breeding stock and your returns You know, from the year when you're selling lambs. You won't have as many if, if your sheep have gone. Mm. Is it consoling in in a way that you've got neighbours to discuss this with because you've, you you know you share experiences because I I you know have spoken to some farmers where they seem to be the only ones ha- having the impacts and it's they find it tricky to discuss it with others and yeah you know, what what are the you know, does it bug it must bug you all um, that you've got this sort of invisible predator around. Oh, yes. Um, again, it's small holdings here, so there's more of us in a smaller area than perhaps a big farmer. Um, so yes, it's consoling to be able to discuss it. But our neighbour, who seems to be getting the brunt of the attacks, we all started out saying, well, you know, obviously it's a wild animal, it's lovely to have wild animals about, and we really felt that, uh, okay, an, an odd loss is okay. But we don't want to see the animal um, put down or shot or tracked or whatever. But my neighbour, who's now had 
numerous losses. He's beginning to think that this is a rogue animal. It's targeting sheep, particularly hares, and she can't sustain the losses. Yes, yes. Now, I, I have had that reaction from, from other farmers. Yeah, I, I think it, it often does come down to how long it's going on for, doesn't it, and how many, proportionately, how much of the flock are being taken out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is, is there any practical action you guys think you can do that would um, minimise the impact? Well, um, it has been suggested that using dip to try and discourage the animal because of the smell of the dip is, is not pleasant to them. Mm. Um, that, that is one thing, to, to return to, to dipping with a smellier thing. Even if there isn't a blowfly problem or whatever dipping would be for. Well, it's the sheep scab that was the the thing in this area, and and that has minimised. Yeah. Um, Again, it's cost, and we now have to be licensed to buy dip, and somebody with a licence has to oversee it. Mm. And crofters have diminished in numbers in the area, and it all adds to the cost, which... um, uh, eats away at the profits, the small profits one has from um, sheep farming in, in a small way. Mm. Um, my neighbour has certainly had uh, a gamekeeper who's quite a good mark and come up on a few occasions to go out the hill at night and has shot foxes and hopefully this would deter the, the cat if it is a cat. Mm. Um, but it doesn't seem to have done. The, the, the predator seems to be getting bolder. Yes. I mean, to come within 200 yards of the house at 5 o'clock in the morning when it's still light here, or it's getting light, it, it seems quite a bold animal, which is quite worrying. Would it attack um, a child if a child was out there? I think we, you know, that luckily that we don't feel there's any experience to date of that in Britain, although that, and it doesn't seem to be that that's a sort of standard behaviour. I mean, that there, um, although you know, there's no rules on this. We are all learning, aren't we? What about dogs and horses? Um, are you able to sort of sense through them when it's possibly around? I haven't personally found that. My friend who was walking her dogs said the dogs were spooked before this animal came across. They became nervous um, and she wasn't sure why and then this animal crossed in front of her. Uh, another crofter said that her horses had been um, nervous and, and running around the field and, and bunched in the corner for no apparent reason. Hmm. But personally I haven't experienced this. Yeah. What's the longest interval you get when there's no sense of the cat being around? Um, well, over the last two, three years, it, it hasn't been more than a few weeks. There certainly seems to have been an, an upsurge in activity. Perhaps it's closer in that we're more aware of it. Sheep could have been taken out on the hill ground on moorland, um, and we're not aware. Yeah. My son lost over half of his lambs. Uh, what we do here is after lambing time, and the lambs are about four or five weeks old, they go out onto the hill ground with their mothers and are taken in three months later for at um, clipping time, ready for the sales. And he found that he'd lost half of his lambs that were put out, which is a big loss mm. and unusual. But w- whether that was... Um, 
a four-legged predator or whether it's, as is becoming more common, a, a two-legged one. We don't know. Yes, or a bit of both. To what extent do you think the local foxes have learnt that there's a predator around and they can scavenge sort of bits when the big predator's finished? Is that happening, do you think? We've actually noted that there are less foxes over the last two or three years. Prior to that, the fox population was building up um, because there aren't so many gamekeepers about. Hmm. And if young lambs were put out to the hill, we assumed it was foxes that were taking young lambs. But certainly with the cameras, the trail cameras out, the number of foxes that I've seen have not been numerous. Hmm. Or would a cat take a fox? Well... Yes, in some circumstances. I mean, they're not going to expend energy stalking an animal that's difficult to predate, but uh, I think Mm -hmm. opportunistically, certainly. And in my book, there's a fox carcass. I see other fox carcasses, again, very similar to the the state of a carcass that's been eaten overnight um, from the sheep that you're talking about. So filleted out, cleanly eaten, yeah. Um, So I think, Mm -hmm. yes, the answer is yes. So I think there's a key question which would be very good to have your view on, and that's your just your personal view on big cats being around in Britain, being out wild and, and even potentially naturalising. What's your sort of personal view? I've felt since the, um, I've had knowledge of, of cats potentially being sighted in this area that it's part of British life now that the cats are out there, as wild cats have always been in Scotland. Mm-hmm. But if it's starting to change its behaviour and come in and take domestic animals on a regular basis, I find that slightly worrying. And, and perhaps I would want to see that animal, if it's a rogue animal, dispatched. Mm. If it's keeping to its natural instincts and, and predating deer, as you say, rabbits, foxes, and not impacting on farming. Um, okay, that's all well and good. It's part of natural life. Mm. So you distinguish between a rogue animal and the and the rest of the population. Yes, uh, this one that's in our area would seem to be um, changing its behaviour. As I mean, I've had a badger come in and kill all my hens, which I understand they'll do when they get old or find it's an easy form of. Um, getting a meal yeah that normally they wouldn't do that mm. so so then you, you get a bit cross and think well i don't want to have my animals uh predated yes what about if there was some system for compensating uh especially your neighbor who's uh you know lost i think if you, if you said it's if it's occasional losses you know, maybe you can manage that but if it yeah. becomes routine would you like if one could be arranged some kind of compensation system and it may be that you one would have to make a judgment because you wouldn't want sort of cheating in the system and people proposing any old um carcass that was clearly not a cat um for a sort of some compensation payment but say there was a judgment an assessment and once something was sort of 90 85 90 percent ticking the boxes for cat-like predation the landowner received a payment would that sort of help or is there still an emotional is it beyond not just finance there's sort of the the fact that you live with the sort of concern of a a rogue animal about 
Well, yes, certainly compensation would help because um, that's offsetting your 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 losses, um, your financial losses. And I believe that happens in Scandinavia where there are known predators. Mm. Um, but that means that the um, government or the agricultural department accept that there are big predators on the loose in Britain, which doesn't seem to be the case. Yes, I guess, though, there could be another system for compensation. One could be uh, arranged through some kind of separate independent body. So I, I think we could get round the issue of um, the fact that it's awkward for a state body to invent the bureaucracy for this. So um, that's what's occurring to me also. But we could discuss that more th- as we go through the podcast. But um, mm-hmm. I guess it's the, the, this issue that is it just for... I, I'm, I, I think, you know, the finance is absolutely fundamental, but it's the emotional issue as well to what extent um is it beyond finance and it's just the fact that you've got this nagging concern about a rogue animal that you can't uh, control much yes it is it's very emotionally upsetting when you've reared animals um you know from lambs up to mature animals you help them with the lambing every year and to see them Eaten is completely like this. Mm. Um, the emotional impact on the dog from the dog attack was quite considerable. Mm. To see animals suffering unnecessarily, so obviously the animals are suffering when they're being grabbed by whatever big animal it is and eaten. Yes. Um, so there's that emotional impact. Yeah, and of course it's it's um, heightened if you're dealing with pedigree stock, uh, as I've found. You know, in the reactions I get from farmers and landowners. Do you all feel pretty much the same about it, Gene, or are there different opinions? I certainly have met some communities and farming families and property owners where there can be actually different views around the kitchen table as you discuss it. And that's natural on all, on all sorts of things, I guess. But or are you are you know do you have different sort of takes on it? I think we're fairly consistent up here with the people I've spoken to. Um, who've had losses or have seen the animal that they don't particularly want it to be done away with. Mm. But it is the fact that it is getting bolder and more persistent yeah. at the moment, that, that this is perhaps a rogue animal and we can't um, continue with it yeah. doing this for any length of time. Yes. I think that's a very understand. I think people w- would appreciate your your position Gene, we're, we're coming to an end, and we have you know ticked all the things on my list. So thank you very much for that. But is there anything else in addition that you feel you'd like to say? I suppose one thing that has gone through my head as we've been speaking is the current climate of um, wilding areas, which we've been affected by, and some of the people who want to wild vast areas want to introduce large predators such as lynx. And having seen whatever is in our area um, causing an impact on our stock, um, it's a bit worrying that that this would be intentionally made worse by introduction of um, large predators of different kinds. I I don't want to sort of take sides on that, but what I would say is that the advocates of that are saying that if they're not rogue animals, you won't get much of an impact and there could be something like an independent compensation system and advisory systems mm-hmm. and whatever. 
and the sort of testing of of that could be of the whole approach could be changed or even stopped if the if the pilots you know suggested actually this is too much hassle for people so if it was managed carefully and really responsibly with landowners and farmers and people like you actually involved in influencing it would that change your view or, or are you too influenced by you know the, the, this unpleasant situation you've experienced um i think this recent situation has made me think more about the fact that the if, if large predators are introduced they're not going to be confined to the area of, of who owns them or who's introduced them. They, they won't see boundaries. They'll cross over to where the food is. Mm. What about the argument that if they if they do sort of act uh, in the way that is, is assumed and is hoped by the advocates of, of the proposals, that it will be more like keeping deer down, keeping rabbits down, keeping the foxes at bay so there may be hopefully more way more benefits than disbenefits and disbenefits can be managed and compensated is do you, do you take heart from that at all would does that influence you at all well yes if, if there was an agreed um, system of compensation for losses um but as you've already said it is proving that that loss is due to a certain predator which could be quite difficult yeah, I think it is important to talk through the issues, particularly from people with the direct experience like yourselves. And, and it's also interesting to hear your view that your understanding about the fact that there is a big predator out perhaps through previous generations of, of people being irresponsible and having um, trophy pets that you know they've released and have now spread and naturalized perhaps a, a little bit. And you know, occasionally a rogue individual does cause the upsets that you're you're seeing so that it is um it, it's so important to hear about it for real rather than just you know ha- have the discussion in abstract well Jean, i want to thank you very much for going through the, the various sort of mixed emotions you clearly have uh, um, and we'd like to keep in touch we, we um, we're certainly going to be returning to discussions with sheep farmers during the course of this podcast series and we may well speak to you again particularly if you have further events and want to discuss any twists and turns to what goes on in your local area so for now, Jean, thank you very much indeed. Oh, it's a pleasure. Well, that wraps up this episode. Next episode, we will be visiting Buckinghamshire and the Chiltern, speaking to a witness of what appeared to be a young puma and talking to Paolo, who will give us an overview of what's going on in the county as far as he's concerned as one of the key recorders of big cats there. So join us next time for Big Cat Conversations. Thanks for listening, everyone.